I think that's it. Let's open our Bibles to Ezekiel 44. We begin to get the order of service in the future millennial temple. The very fact that there is an order of service and that the believers have certain assignments is in, it's, it, in itself is instructive to us. You see, whenever we get together, there is to be some order in our serving the Lord and in serving one another. Now, in the New Testament era in which we live, there is great freedom in determining the order of service. For example, we're told regarding the frequency of the Lord's Supper or communion, as we commonly call it, we're told to celebrate it, quote, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. That's from Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And try as you might, you won't find anywhere in the New Testament any kind of rules for how often you're supposed to uh, share at the Lord's uh, Supper or take communion. And so it leaves it to churches to decide if they want to do it every day, every week, every month. Uh, the only idea is that it's one of the ordinances of the church, and when we do it, we want to do it to honor the Lord. And so, but, but there's no specific time to do it. Some churches, uh, they, they want to get into things like that. They want to say, no, it has to be every week. Uh, or, you know, if, I guess if you really wanted to be super biblical... Uh, you might want to do it every day because there's some indication in Acts that maybe the early church shared in communion every day, although uh, they might argue there that Acts 2.42 is really just talking about sharing in meals together and, and, and all that. But the point is we have a lot of freedom in determining our order of service. If you come to Calvary, you see that we do different things at different services. Uh, Sunday morning is, is you know, we, as Gino explained, we're trying to be a little bit more uh, attentive. Uh, and so we restrict uh, within reason uh, certain areas for adults only and you know, we try and make it as distraction-free as possible. Wednesday night, apparently, that goes out the window and uh, you know, we're a little bit more family-oriented and home-oriented and, and uh, you know, the kids are in. And, and um, by the way, we have something special that we're cooking up for kids on Wednesday night, but I'll tell you more about that someday. A uh, couple of weeks, we're working on it. But anyway, so we do things a little bit differently, but there's always an order of service. Uh, and, and so there's a freedom about it, but there's an order. We can choose our style of worship, our time of worship, the place we worship. Just about everything is open to us so long as it honors the Lord and His holiness. Uh, a lot of times what happens is people, if you grow up in a church or you get saved in a certain church, you get used to the way that church does things. And then when you go somewhere else, you, you almost feel like it's wrong uh, because they're not doing something that really ministered to you or they're doing it differently. Sometimes you like it better, but uh, it's, 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 we have a great freedom. Uh, I know whenever I uh, used to travel more overseas... Uh, and, and do missionary work, whether it's the Philippines or China or uh, Honduras or some of these other places, uh, it was always fun if you were with a group because we'd go to various church services and invariably something would be happening that wasn't really out of order or weird, but it was different. And, and people would look and say, is, is this okay? I remember one time I thought everybody was going to have a heart attack because we were in the Philippines and we were having communion on a Sunday morning and women served it. Wow. It was rough for a couple of guys on the team. But anyway, I say, hey, we're in the Philippines. And, uh, you know, that, you know, 
it's fine. Don't worry about it. And so uh, that's what happens. Now, it doesn't follow, though, that a lack of order is spiritual. Uh, so just because you're free to have various different things going on, it doesn't mean it's a free-for-all. Uh, there's a kind of a, a misunderstanding among Christians that spontaneity is the greatest move of the Spirit. That when everybody's doing something different and slightly crazy, that's when the Holy Spirit has really been set loose. Up until that time, he's been all bottled up like a genie in a bottle, you know. And he just can't wait to break out and start doing all kinds of crazy, nonsensical things in different corners. The Holy Spirit is uh, a spirit of order. And Paul corrected the Corinthian church, didn't he? He said, look, you guys, are, you're way out of order. When people come to church, they think you're crazy. You think you're spiritual, but they think you're crazy. And they don't hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, order is spiritual. Now, before God gives Ezekiel some ideas about order of service, he introduces a mysterious character. Verse 1, Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces toward the east, but it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut, shall not be opened, and no man shall enter by it, because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore it shall be shut. As for the prince, because he is the prince... He may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. Now, once the Lord returns to the temple through the east gate, it will be sealed and remain shut. No one else is going to use it. As we learned a few weeks ago, there's a popular notion that the current east gate in Jerusalem, which is also called the golden gate, is the gate described by Ezekiel, but it isn't. For one thing, the dimensions of it are all different. And more importantly, we've seen from our studies that the Millennial Temple will not be in the exact spot the current Temple Mount occupies. Well, who is this prince? Well, let's see first who it isn't. It isn't the Lord for the following reasons. In verse 3, it says that he eats bread before the Lord. So clearly the phrasing indicates he's a different person than the Lord. In chapter 45, we're going to learn that this prince makes sin offerings for himself as well as for the people. There's no way the Lord would offer a sacrifice for himself. In chapter 46, we learn that this prince has children. And then in uh, Ezekiel 48:22, we're told that this prince will have a land allotment along with the tribes of Israel. So it's not the Lord. Who is it? I say that it's David resurrected and co-ruling with Jesus Christ over Jerusalem. Consider the following verses. Hosea 3.5 says this, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 9, But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Earlier in Ezekiel, chapter 34, I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd and I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. And then in Ezekiel 37, 24 and 25, David, my servant, shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd and they also shall walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. And so we're really not told in 
uh, chapter 44 who the prince is because we've already been told that it's David. Some commentators feel that for whatever reason, I, I don't know the reason, but they think, well, it's not really David. It's just David in the sense of a descendant of David, the house of David. Uh, but I don't see any reason why it isn't David, the King David of the Old Testament, now resurrected and uh, co-ruling with Jesus Christ. And so, uh, you know, if you have a different idea, take your best shot. But, uh, you know, I, I think it'd be cool uh, for David, uh, the psalmist, the shepherd of Israel, to uh, be doing that. And that seems to be the indication of the Scriptures. Uh, and so he's going to be co-regent, or we would say prince, in the administration of the Messiah. Now, before Ezekiel begins to describe the service of the priests, he's given an exhortation to deliver to his listeners in verses 4 through 8. Remember, this is the 6th century B.C. Jerusalem has just fallen. The temple is destroyed. There are already exiles in Babylon who've been carried off in the prior sieges by Nebuchadnezzar. And Ezekiel is ministering to them and he's telling them, hey, the temple is gone, but it's going to be back in the millennium, especially God is going to keep His promises. And so he has this exhortation to them in verses 4 through 8. Also, he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple. So I looked and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord and I fell on my face. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the ordinances of the house of the Lord and all its laws. Mark well who may enter the house and all who go out from the sanctuary. Say to the rebellious, to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, let us have no more of your abominations. And when you brought in foreigners uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh to be in my sanctuary to defile it, my house, when you offered your, uh, my food, when, and when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, then they broke my covenant because of all your abominations, and you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep charge of my sanctuary for you. There's a line in Godfather 2 that has found its way into pop culture. Michael Corleone is incensed that a rival gangster has broken the gangster code by trying to kill him at his home. And so he exclaims, In my home, in my bedroom, where my wife sleeps, where my children play with their toys. And uh, you, you've probably heard that in some comedic uh, setting because it's... it's it's, you know, found its way. But God says something like that. He looks at verse 7. He says, When you brought in foreigners uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh to be in my sanctuary to defile it, my house. That's what the Lord is saying. He goes, you brought, you brought them into the sanctuary in my house. It was like a thing unheard of. It's in, incredible that they would do this. Uh, and so he's reminding the Jews uh, that, yes, the discipline is extreme, uh, but not undeserved. Uh, I, I never knew a time disciplining children when they didn't think it was extreme. Right? And, uh, and, and, you know, sometimes it's not extreme in the sense of being dangerous or, or hurtful or anything, but it, it's, it's severe. Yeah, now you're not going where we were going to go. You're going to be like, wait a minute, that seems extreme. I remember, uh, just, it, I, can, I can tell this story now because this family's not here. Uh, to, to be embarrassed, but um, there's a mythical family uh, that uh, uh, they, they are having trouble, I mean, real big trouble with one of their children. Uh, I mean, it just, I mean, in, you know, trouble with the law. And he was a teenager, and they're having this trouble. And so they, they put him on a restriction. 
but the restriction was going to overlap with a trip to Disneyland. And so they lifted the restriction uh, so that they could all go to Disneyland together, and then they, they uh, you know, got the restriction back. And I said, hey, just leave him with the grandparents. Don't take him to Disneyland. I mean, if he's, is he restricted or not? Oh, no, that would be too extreme. And, so, and I said, yeah, that's the whole idea. It has to cost something. You don't understand the level of disobedience that you're dealing with here. And so the Lord, he, he does. He says, look, I've destroyed Jerusalem. I've given it to the Babylonians. I've destroyed the temple. Wow, that's extreme. Yes, but it was necessary because you defiled my house. You didn't really... Uh, now it matters to you because there is no temple, but a few months ago you didn't really care, did you? Because you had idols in the temple. And, and you gave the, the, you know, you were letting people minister who weren't qualified to minister. And it didn't seem like you really cared that much about the temple. And, and so this is the discipline that I've determined. It's extreme, but it's necessary. Uh, today we are the house of the Lord, both in our individual bodies and in our corporate body as we gather together. What are we or what am I, I might say, bringing into the house of the Lord? It's an important question, especially in this age of grace when we tend to keep moving boundaries uh, further and further away from holiness uh, and, and towards worldliness. And so it's a good question for all of us in our devotions to say, what am I bringing to, into the house of the Lord? What am I watching and listening to and hanging around with and those kinds of things? Verse 9, thus says the Lord God, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh shall enter my sanctuary including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. In case we were still wondering, this verse puts us on notice that men will still be sinners needing salvation in the millennium. The heart of the problem, as Billy Graham used to say, is the problem of the heart. Uh, scientists and, and ethicists and philosophers still debate whether it's the, you know, the person or the environment, and there's still those who believe that if we perfect the environment, we will perfect the man, uh, but the problem is in the heart. Uh, and in a near-perfect environment in the future, with the Lord Jesus Christ on the earth, ruling and reigning, David in his resurrected body, co-ruling, you and I in our glorified bodies helping out, angels hanging out, the new Jerusalem hovering over the earth, uh, people will still be sinners in need of salvation, and a vast tribe of people will uh, reject the Lord at the end of the, of the millennium. And so it's... it's uh, it's an amazing thing, really, the wickedness of the heart. Kind of mind-blowing to me that Jesus Christ could be on the earth in his resurrected body and people still reject their need for salvation. Now, verse 9 forms a segue to verses 10 through 14 because there we learn that God will restrict the duties of certain priests as well in the millennial temple. Verse 10, And the Levites who went far from me, when Israel went astray, who strayed away from me after their idols, they shall bear their iniquity. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary as gatekeepers of the house and ministers of the house. They shall slay the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people and they shall stand before them to minister to them because they ministered to them before their idols and caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity. Therefore, I have raised my hand in an oath against them, says the Lord, that they shall bear their iniquity and they shall not come near me to minister to me as priest, nor come near any of my holy things, nor into the most holy place but they shall bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. Nevertheless, I will make them keep charge of the temple for all its work and for all that has to be done in it. Now, we're going to see in a moment that the only Levites, only the Levites descended from 
Zadok are going to be allowed to uh, do certain things. The Levites from the other families did not remain faithful, but led the people into sin. I think this has application to every New Testament believer in this sense. We are to do everything in our power to not offend, or we would sometimes say stumble, other believers. Yes, we have and we enjoy great liberty in Jesus Christ. And we should um, be thankful for that. But our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ always supersedes individual liberty. That's just a principle uh, that's taught in the New Testament. The, the, you know, Jesus said it would be better for you, you know, speaking in general terms, that you had a hundred pound millstone hung around your neck and you were dropped in the deepest part of the ocean rather than you would cause a little one to sin or stumble another believer. Uh, but we don't even really need the warning. If your heart is filled with the love of Jesus Christ, of course you don't want to hurt another believer. Of course you don't want to stumble anybody. And you're willing to... Uh, put aside anything that maybe you want to do or or have liberty to do in order to minister to someone else. Paul the Apostle, in his discussion about meat sacrificed to idols, he said, if you want to partake of a liberty that offends others, have it to yourself and to God. Go out of your way to keep it to yourself. I mean, quite honestly, there are things that are lawful for Christians to do. doesn't cause you to sin. Uh, you can do it without sinning, uh, but others are stumbled by that behavior. And you have a decision whether you're going to do it to your, uh, unto yourself and to God uh, or you're going to flaunt it uh, and risk stumbling others. And, and that's a lot more serious sometimes than we understand. Uh, don't become an evangelist for your liberty. Seriously, some believers are more vocal about questionable behaviors than they are about the gospel. Instead of sharing Christ with non-believers, they're sharing their vices with believers. Uh, and they're just, you know, they're just, hey, I do this, it's okay, you should do it too. Uh, and and uh, I'm just saying be careful about that because you don't know who you might stumble. Uh, and, and who might, maybe something that's okay for you is not okay for them. And if they start doing it, it's going to drag them down into the cesspool of their sin again. And you just don't want to be responsible for that. You don't want to do that. So we all just, you know, we love one another. We want to be careful. We do this with our children. I mean, regardless whatever your standards are, there are always things that are inappropriate for children that are more appropriate for adults. And as your children are growing up, you shield them from those things. You may do them when they're in bed. You know, you might watch certain things on television that you don't let them watch. And it's not evil. The things that you're watching aren't evil. They're not wrong. They're not, they're not terrible. But you don't want to expose your children to them. And, and we should see other brothers and sisters in Christ that same way. We may not want to expose them to things that are okay for us uh, because it will have a bad effect on them. Uh, that's all. Now, before we navigate away from these verses, notice the precious nature of verse 14. God, in His mercy, still allows these guys to serve. They may be disqualified from certain things, but not from everything. Uh, and and uh, so in his, in his judgment, God remembers mercy. He says, look, um, because of the history of everything that happened and the unfaithfulness of your ancestors and all, this is the judgment that's coming down. You're, you can't do certain things. I promised the descendants of Zadok that they would do them, but you're not completely shut off from worship. 
there are things that you can do. And the attitude that, of course, that these guys should have is, well, praise the Lord for His mercy. Uh, because we don't deserve really anything like that. Uh, and so it's, it's very interesting. One of the hard things in the Christian uh, community at large is, is dealing with uh, the aftermath of sin. Uh, and, and you've got a lot of different opinions. I remember, just quite frankly, if, uh, several years ago, gosh, how many years has it been? How old am I? I don't even know. But anyway, maybe, I don't know, but many, many years ago, a very prominent uh, Bible teacher in Southern California uh, got involved in a sinful situation and uh, his church asked Pastor Chuck at Calvary Costa Mesa if he would take him under his wing and disciple him and discipline him and you know just kind of help to restore him. And uh, after a while, uh, Pastor Chuck had this individual start teaching again at Calvary Costa Mesa. It was, there was a firestorm of criticism from other Christian leaders. Uh, hey, this guy is totally disqualified. He can never teach again. Uh, you know, what are you doing and stuff. And, uh, you know, Pastor Chuck just felt differently about it. Uh, I have my own feelings about it. I kind of, um, I'm on the Pastor Chuck side. If you're going to make an error, err on the side of grace. But it just shows that this is a difficult issue. I'm not saying that these other guys are bozos. I mean, these are, these are big issues. Uh, you know, if somebody sins in a certain way, you know, we want to restore them, we want to receive them back. Uh, I think most of the time we err on the side of too much caution. We feel like they have to suffer or, you know, they haven't repented enough or something like that or, you know, they're disqualified from more than they need to be. Uh, but it's just tough. And just know that. And so when you hear about these things and you hear about how they're being dealt with, just know that it's a, those are very difficult issues. But if we're going to make an error or if we're going to make a judgment, let's do it on the side of grace and mercy and forgiveness. Uh, because God, even in His judgments, He says, look, I can't let you do certain things now because of the way you sinned as priests, but I still want you to serve me and I'm going to find a place for you. Uh, and that's a great heart to have. Now, in verses 15 through 27, we're given the overview of the ministry of the priests who do descend from Zadok. Uh, it's a long section, but let's read it together. But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer to me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary, and they shall come near my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge." And it shall be whenever they enter the gates of the inner court, they shall put on linen garments. No wool shall come upon them while they minister within the gates of the inner court or within the house. They shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen trousers on their bodies. And they shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. When they go out to the outer court, to the outer court to the people, they shall take off their garments in which they have ministered, leave them in the holy chambers and put on other garments. And in their holy garments, they shall not sanctify the people. They shall neither shave their heads nor let their hair grow long, but they shall keep their hair well trimmed. No priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. They shall not take as wife a widow or a divorced woman, but take virgins of the descendants of the house of Israel or the widows of priests. And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy and cause them to discern between the clean and the unclean. In controversy, they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes in all my appointed meetings, and they shall hallow my Sabbaths. 
They shall not defile themselves by coming near a dead person. Only for father or mother, for son or daughter, for brother or unmarried sister, may they defile themselves. After he is cleansed, they shall count seven days for him. And on the day that he goes to the sanctuary to minister in the sanctuary, he must offer his sin offering in the inner court, says the Lord God. Now in the days of David and Solomon, Zadok and his boys remained loyal while the other priests did not. And that's when God promised that his descendants would be remembered in the far future. These priests have a high calling and a high privilege. And with it comes a higher standard of living. They are to be separate, different in their clothing, in their grooming, in their marriages, in their drinking of alcohol, among other things that are listed here. Now, it isn't that those practices make you holy or spiritual. They communicate to others that you understand your high calling and your high privilege to serve the Lord. And so they didn't do these things to become holy. God says, I've set you apart for a certain service and you're going to live this way as a sign to others that you've been set apart for a high calling and a high purpose. We often get this wrong in the church. We think that the restrictions will cause us to be better Christians. We shake our heads at monks knowing that cloistering themselves away will not eliminate the desires of the flesh. But then we adopt our own diet ideas or our own dress, our own grooming and other habits, and then we think that we're more spiritual because of it. It just doesn't work that way. Some Christians are like mini monks. Uh, you know, it's a, they don't go full on. They don't say, hey, I want to kill the flesh, so I'm going to go live in a monastery and just chant all day. Uh, but they have their own personal rules and regulations, and that's okay as long as they don't start to project it onto others and say, hey, this is the way a Christian should dress and groom themselves and eat, and these are the days that you should worship and those kinds of things. Now you've passed into the realm of thinking that something outward can make you more spiritual, and it can't. Now, having said all that, it is still a high calling and a high privilege to serve the Lord. It's not just as a minister or a missionary. Here's what I mean. In the New Testament, there are standards for men who desire to serve the Lord as pastors and elders and deacons. Uh, But when you read those standards, really, they are applicable to any and every Christian man who wants to serve the Lord anywhere in the church or in the world. Uh, I mean, the, the standards are not... Uh, unreachable or unusual. Uh, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're to be the husband of one wife, have a good marriage. You're, you're not to be an angry person. You're, you're not to be a striker or somebody who causes arguments and division and things like that. And you read them and you think, well, yeah, this is great for leaders, but it's really just great for Christians. And so you say, we want the leaders to, to really have proven themselves in these areas for various reasons, but this is something that all Christians should aspire to. Let me put it this way, because I think some of you might relate to my experience. Growing up in the Roman Catholic tradition, I, my understanding, my wrong understanding was that priests and nuns were super spiritual saints in another dimension. And then there was everybody else. And since I wasn't going to be super spiritual, I didn't have to do super spiritual kinds of things. I just had to do a few things. I had to not murder somebody and for a while, you know, I, the church taught that you couldn't commit adultery either, and they've softened on that. They still don't want you to commit adultery, but it's not a mortal sin anymore. When I grew up, there were mortal sins, and if you committed one of them, that was it. You were done. It was over. 
No purgatory, no buying indulgences. You were just done. And then there was so much mortal sinning going on. It was like mortal combat, really, is what it was. There was so much mortal sinning going on that they kind of relaxed that. But there's this big gap in the understanding, and this applies in most religions. We think there's, there's the spiritual, there's the monk who's on the top of the mountain, and then there's everybody else, and I'm never going to be that. I'll be, you know, I want to be a little bit spiritual, but I can't be that spiritual. Uh, and so there's this big divide. Now, uh, almost imperceptibly, I think Protestants have come up with this same idea. We invent a gap between the minister and the missionary and the average believer. They need to have certain high standards, but we don't. Well, a minister is a Christian with certain gifts. A missionary is a Christian with certain gifts and callings. Everyone who is not a minister or a missionary is a Christian with certain gifts and callings. So where's the gap? It's only in our way of thinking, which often leads us to relax our standards. And so if we're going to pick leaders for the church, okay, let's go to... Timothy and Titus and read the characteristics of a godly man. Make sure that the guy is doing those things. But really, they're just the characteristics of a godly man. And then we start to discover the characteristics of a godly woman. And there's no gap. There's no, there's no super spiritual level of sainthood. There's just walking with the Lord. Uh, and so we all want to aspire to these things. The millennial priests... Uh, will have a lot of restrictions or a lot of lifestyle differences. Uh, they are, in one sense, arbitrary. There's nothing special about the fact that they don't, uh, that they have to keep themselves well groomed. God isn't saying that it's a sin to have long hair and a beard. He's saying, no, but in your case, I just want you to be separate, and here's some things that you can do to, to look separate, to communicate, and to signify what a high calling and a high privilege it is to serve the Lord. The millennial priest won't be drinking wine as much as I want to. not going to get into a discussion about drinking tonight. You know what I believe. It's okay to drink, but it's never okay to be drunk. That's just basic Bible 101 stuff. My problem is that no one has ever been able to define for me exactly where drinking becomes drunkenness. I don't know if it's your blood alcohol. I don't know if it... I don't know what it is. I mean, and I'm very serious. I, we always laugh about this, but... If the Bible says don't be drunk with wine where it's in excess, I, 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 and I, I, hey, I know it's okay to drink, but I don't know where the line is. Because when I used to be a drunk, to me being drunk was when you passed out. That was when you were actually drunk. Everything leading up to that, all the crazy behavior and doing all kinds of weird things and putting people's lives at risk behind the, the wheel of an automobile, that was not being drunk because you had not passed out yet. Then when you passed out, you know what I'm talking Some of you guys are laughing because you know this is true. Then you pass out. I'm not happy about this. It's funny, but in a tragic way. Then you'd say you'd be at a party and there'd be a guy passed out and say, hey, that guy's drunk. <laughs> Hit me again, you know, and stuff. Are you drunk when you first get a buzz? When you first get that little buzz that, you know, when the alcohol starts to affect you, is that when you're drunk? I don't know. So if the Bible says, be not drunk with wine, whereas in excess, where is the point of excess? I guess you could do the, a breathalyzer thing. You could say, well, Lord, you know, you say to obey the government. The government says I can have .0 something in my blood, so I'll take a drink and then breathalyze. Well, I'm getting near it, you know. What is it, Rob? It's .0 what? .08. All right. 
so you could have your own personal Bible breathalyzer. I might market this. This is it. This could put me over the edge. The Bible breathalyzer. And as soon as you get hovering near about 0.07, it's like, look, I don't want to be drunk from the world's, uh, you know, from the government standards, so I better quit drinking. So anyway, enough said about that. Personally, and, and I'm sure it's because of my background, uh, I think alcohol is a great evil. Uh, I've told you before, and, and you laugh, and it's, it, but it's not funny. No one's ever come to me in a counseling session and say, Pastor Gene, my life was falling apart until I discovered alcohol. And now alcohol has saved my life and my marriage. We didn't know love until we started drinking. Uh, you know, it's usually just the opposite. It's, you know, it's some guy sitting there saying, I don't drink that much, and then his wife finally can't take it. She says, that means he drinks less than a case. One beer less than a case every day, you know, and stuff. So anyway, look, I don't want to put a trip on people who drink. Almost everybody drinks. It's okay to drink, but it's not okay to get drunk. But you have to struggle now with when, when am I really drunk? And so every time you'll see my face. But anyway, <laughs> the chapter closes with information about you. It, you. We make exhortation fun, don't we? I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's just, you can't be exhorted in any more fun way than that, I tell you. Now, the chapter closes with information about the portion for these priests. Let's, let's breeze through this. It shall be in regard to their inheritance that I am their inheritance. You shall give them no possession in Israel, for I am their possession. They shall eat the grain offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. Every dedicated thing in Israel shall be theirs. The best of all first fruits of any kind and every sacrifice of any kind from all your sacrifices shall be the priests. Also, you shall give to the priest the first of your ground meal to cause a blessing to rest on your house. The priests shall not eat anything, bird or beast, that died naturally or was torn by wild beasts. So, no roadkill for the priests. The emphasis, though, in that isn't on the priest going out and getting some sweet possum you know, off the ground. Uh, it's on the offerer. I think what is indicated here is that when the Israelite thinks of bringing an offering, he or she should always bring the first and the best, not roadkill that they find along the way. Uh, that's the idea. It's like, you know, if you get up and you look out and say, wow, that's a freshly run over possum. God's provided for the offering today, you know. No, they want you to look to your flock and get you know, your prize, uh, you know, 4-H sheep and bring that thing in. That's what they're talking about. Now, over the years, I've seen a lot of roadkill given in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, now, it's one thing to donate or give away something that you and everybody else knows is junk. And we do that. That's fine. That's fine. You've got, you go through your closet, you, you've got these appliances, you've got stuff, it's got scratches and dings and dents, maybe it doesn't even work. And, and you give it away. You give it to King's Christian Thrift Store. And then they have to deal with it, you know. And, 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 uh, but that's good, that's fine. Everybody knows that's what you're doing. There's, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is those times when people say, I've got this wonderful, magnificent gift that I'm going to give you, and it is a piece of junk. And they know it, and you know it, uh, and, and they're trying to pass it off. And it's just, it's roadkill, basically, is what it is. Uh, and so, give anything you want, that's fine. Just don't pretend that it's more than it is. Uh, you know, and, 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 and the real lesson here is God says, hey, give me your first, give me your best, and, uh, and you'll be blessed. 
Giving God our best doesn't mean we dress up in our Sunday best for church. It's a heart issue. It is the desire of our heart to give God the first and the best of our treasure and of our time and of our talent because we love Him and it's the least we can do. Amen? Amen.